0: We are FBC Summit, leading everyday people to love Jesus and make him known. Thank you so much for joining us today. Here's our pastor, Dr. Larry LeBlanc. Would you take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to 2 John. We'll be in verses 7 through 13 together. 2 John 7. Through 13. As you know, we began a study last week. It's the month of March. We're going to be looking at the books of 2nd and 3rd John, two of the shortest epistles and two of the shortest books of all of the New Testament. And so, as we walk through them together, I think what we've already seen last week and what we'll see again this week that packed in these very short Bible books are some very important truths that we need to pay close attention to. So over the month of March, we'll be walking through 2 John and 3 John. And then the first two weeks in April, we're going to be in the Gospel of John as we celebrate together on Palm Sunday and Easter. And then following that, I couldn't be more excited. We're going to begin a brand new study together, take us about four months. We're going to walk through the life of Moses together. So I'm excited about what God's got coming, but I am excited about what God wants. To show you this morning. Many of you know or have heard the story of the Trojan horse. If you don't know the story, you've at least heard the term the Trojan horse. Well, what does it mean? Maybe you remember from history that there was a battle between the Greeks and the Trojans, and the Greeks were trying to invade this Trojan city, this fortified city, but they couldn't knock down the ramparts, they couldn't get over the walls, they couldn't get through the gates. And so, the Greeks devised a strategy. And so, what they did, they decided to act like they were surrendering, to act like they were being defeated, to sail their ships away. But one last thing they did was they built a large wooden horse, and they left it at the gates of Troy. It was to be brought into the city, to be given as an offering, to be given as a way of saying that we have surrendered, and this is our symbol to you of our surrender. So they wheel in this Trojan horse, and they open up the gates, and they bring the horse in. And the Trojans are celebrating because they have won this victory that the Greeks have surrendered, and they bring in this horse as a symbol of this victory. That night, after everyone had gone to bed, you see what the Trojans didn't know is that the entire horse had been stuffed with Greek soldiers— And so, under the cover of darkness, these Greek soldiers let themselves out of the horse and went down to the city gates, and they opened up the city gates of Greece, uh, of Troy, and all of the Greek soldiers were able to come in over the night and overtake the city. And the story is used so often when we hear people talking about it was a Trojan horse. We are saying that the problem came from the inside, that we allowed those from the outside to come inside and the the defeat happened, not because we couldn't stand up to the outside pressures, but because we let the enemy inside the city walls. Friends, today when we talk about being people that live and love the truth, we have to understand that there are a lot of Trojan horses out there. And when it comes to the church and when it comes to your individual life, most of us, the greatest danger we face is the infiltration of things getting inside of our lives and then causing the problems within that will eventually cause the problems without. As we began our study together, you can remember from last week that we were challenged to never sacrifice truth for love or love for truth. You can remember that we talked about the need to walk in truth, the need to walk in obedience, and the need to walk in love. And so today as we continue that theme, the big idea this morning is going to be that we protect the truth at all costs and that we understand that you and I are guardians of a trust. Now, when we say that we're guardians of a trust, what does that really mean? It means that you have been given something, and you have been given something valuable. You have been given something precious. If you were saved today, if your testimony is that you're redeemed, if your testimony is that you're born again, then someone entrusted you with the greatest gift you ever received. Someone cared about you enough, loved you enough. Maybe it was a parent. Maybe it was a teacher. Maybe it was a youth minister or someone that worked with you in Sunday school. Maybe it was a pastor. Maybe it was a friend. But someone shared Jesus with you, and they gave you an incredible trust because you learned about a Jesus that loved you enough that he lived and died, that he rose again, that he would forgive your sins. So that what that means is in this generation that you and I are now guardians of that sacred trust, and the way that we protect the truth at all costs, it absolutely Matters. So let's see how we do that by standing together and reading Second John, beginning in verse 7, and we'll read through the end of this short letter. Many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch out that you not lose what you have worked for, but that you may be rewarded fully. Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take him into your house or welcome him. Anyone who welcomes him shares in his wicked work. I have much to write to you, but I do not want to use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to visit you and talk with you face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your chosen sister send their greetings. Lord Jesus, I pray that we would be people that understand the high calling to be guardians of the trust. That we would be a people who protect the truth at all cost. That we would protect it from those who desire to deceive and destroy. And that we would protect the truth from those who desire to depart and to deny it. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be deceived. So we protect, protect the truth at all cost. And the way that we do that, number one, is to protect truth from those who deceive and and destroy. Protect truth from those who deceive and destroy. Look at the very first verse we read together. In verse 7, it says what? That many deceivers, many deceivers. Now, this is first century, the very first hundred years of the church's existence, and it already said that many people who desired to deceive people were going to be in their midst. Now, I know you're losing an hour of sleep, and I know you heard rumblings of thunder outside, and I know you're ready to start spring break, and you just had nine weeks tests. So this… I'm just going to give you a, 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 what I think is an easy question to start you off. If 2,000 years ago there were many deceivers, do you think the problem has gotten worse or the problem has gotten better? Absolutely, it's gotten worse. You got the first one right. The problem is absolutely it's gotten worse. And the problem is, is that when we begin to talk about people running scams and running deceptions, is that we have to really get back to what biblical love is. It's not being naive, it's not being unconcerned, it's not being not discerning, and it's certainly not being totally accepting of everything. It's in love, we understand that there's got to be a discerning aspect to what it is that we're taking in and understand that there are people that, whether it be for their own financial gain, whether it be for a, because of a work of Satan, whether it be because they're more worried about success or self-aggrandizement or whatever the reason may be, that there are deceivers, that there are false teachers, and that because there are deceivers and false teachers, that you and I have to be on guard if we're going to protect or guard the trust that we've been given. Now, what John goes on to say about them is a very strong indictment, because he didn't just say that they're a problem. He doesn't just say that it's a minor issue. What does he call these deceivers? He said they are the deceivers and the antichrist. Now, that's a strong word, Now, sometimes we get a little confused when we hear that word antichrist. The the word anti simply means against. The word Christ, obviously, we're talking about Jesus. But in the New Testament, you can break it down and make it really easy to understand. Because really, when we hear the word antichrist, we're either talking about capital A Antichrist or lowercase a Antichrist. Anytime we're talking about the capital A Antichrist, we're talking about the figure that's going to show up during the end times, right? That one who's going to lead the world astray. But anytime we're talking about lowercase Antichrist, that is anyone who could be 2,000 years ago or in either day, anyone, part of the many deceivers who are anti or who are against Christ or against the gospel, Now, The point being for John is that he believes that there are genuine Christians in this church. He believes there are students in that church that love Jesus. He believes there's people that are adults that love Jesus and who are committed to truth. But he's worried about them because he knows that how deceptions work and he's worried about them worming their way into homes and into the church and infecting people in a slow fashion that they may not even realize it's happening. So John says, you need to be very careful about who you allow into your home, who you allow into your church, who you allow into your life. Because if you're not careful about that, before you know it, you have adopted false theologies and anti-Christian or anti-Christ deceptions. So when he talks about them letting them into their homes, 2,000 years ago, it wasn't that when you went on spring break, you just booked a hotel. There wasn't any VRBO. There, w- there wasn't uh, motels and hotels like there are today. So when someone came through town, you, were to, you hosted them in your house. That was part of hospitality. So the issue for this church is there were some folks in the church that were actually really sweet people. In fact, they were so sweet, they hated to say no. And because they hated to say no, even when these people came through that were antichrist with false theology, they welcomed them into their home. And when they welcomed them to their home, they also welcomed them into the church and even gave them a place to preach and teach. And so John is having the understanding, he said, listen, I appreciate the." you're you're trying to be hospitable and that you're trying to show love, but you need to know that it's not loving to entertain the doctrine of demons. And that when people are trying to come into your home and subvert biblical authority and undermine truth and undermine the gospel, that it is not unloving for you to say, this is not for you. This home is not for you. And our church is not for you. He draws a line where a lot of people are uncomfortable drawing lines today, looking at someone and saying, you're wrong looking at someone and saying all opinions are not equally valid, that we're not going to be so open-minded that we allow everything to come into our lives and into our church and into our youth group and into our lines of thinking. And that's what he's worried about. But he's worried specifically because this brand of false teacher has a specific errant theology that they are teaching. Did you pick up on that? What are they teaching? They are teaching what? Verse 8, They are helping us to see that in verse 7 and 8, that these false teachers are teaching that Jesus Christ did not come in the flesh. Hmm. Why would they teach that? This is the various earliest forms of what's known as Gnosticism. Now, it would grow in the later centuries to become something even greater than this, but what you are seeing when you read 2 John, and I think this is incredible from a historical standpoint, are the very early seeds of a theology that threatened to destroy the church two centuries later. Because what Gnosticism taught was that matter, all matter was evil and that only spirit was good. So in its earliest forms, they are teaching that Jesus couldn't have had a physical body, because 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 all the physical world is evil. And so if Jesus had a physical body, then Jesus couldn't have been all good. Well, you probably already have broken down what the problem with that is without me even explaining it to to you. But if Jesus did not have a physical body, do you see what the problem with that may be? Number one, the Bible lied. But number two, Jesus had to have a physical body because he had to take on human form. He had to take on human form because it took a human to be an acceptable sacrifice. Without being an acceptable sacrifice, then the sin penalty would have never been paid on the cross. If the sin penalty had never been paid on the cross, then you would still be in your sins. If you are still in your sins, then you are unsaved. And if you are unsaved, you are hellbound. This is not a minor problem. But I want you to see today what happens in a church when we look historically at what happened in the church when things go unchecked, when we just throw up our hands and say, well, it's really no big deal. We'll let them believe what they want to believe, and we'll believe what we want to believe, and it's really just a matter of interpretation, and we just need to let it go. Because less than 200 years after this event, Gnosticism had become so full-blown in churches that it almost caused a complete split in Christendom in the third, 2nd and 3rd centuries. And one of the reasons it caused that is because you may have already been able to predict what Gnosticism would cause. If I now have believed that only spirit is good and matter is evil— then eventually people liked that teaching because they could then believe that their soul could be saved, but in their body they could live however they wanted to. So they could live sexually however they wanted to. They could do whatever they wanted to do. Their motto became that of Nike, just do it, just enjoy it. And part of that was because of Gnosticism. And so what we see is John's fear and John's worry was absolutely critical because it would become a problem. It's also not accidental that John the Apostle is the one that wrote this because he covered the incarnation in the very first book he wrote, in the very first chapter he wrote. Do you remember John 1.14? And the Word became flesh and it dwelt or it tabernacled among us. So it is John that has already laid out the importance of the incarnation in the very first chapter, in the very first verses of his gospel. And so as we flesh this out, he understands that these people are going to be coming into the church and going to try to subvert their way. And whether it's this false teaching or any other, we need to ask ourselves the question, even now, should we expect false teachers? Should we expect to have to battle that? Should we expect to have to guard that trust against it? Well, Jesus said you would. In fact, Jesus said it real clearly in Matthew 7, 15, that there would be wolves in sheep's clothing. He even said in Matthew chapter 24, verse 24, that the, there would be a rise in false prophets. So what that means is, is the greatest danger to the church is What? It's the Trojan horse because what so often you ask that question, you say, what's the greatest danger to the church? And people will say persecution. Sometimes people will say things, even in America, liberal politics is the greatest danger to the church. Uh, progressive thinking is the greatest danger to the church. Let me under, I want you to understand That persecution has never, ever, not one instance in history has persecution been the greatest danger to the church. It doesn't mean that anybody should want to be persecuted, but just follow me. Everywhere that persecution has happened, what's happened to the church? Grown, flourished. Why? Because persecution has a way of purifying the church. It's why that myself and some of you ought to be ashamed at the way we become so pessimistic because we look at progressive policies and liberal policies, and we'll, we'll simply think that the only way that there's any hope is if America somehow makes a turn. Now, I want you to know that I pray for our country too. I'm absolutely, I pray that we make better decisions than the ones that we're making. But understand this, that the world is literally going to hell in a handbasket. Now, when I use that phrase, I, I use that intentionally because I want you to hear me. The world is not destined to be there forever. There is no Green New Deal where we're going to be able to have the world forever and ever and ever. The world is going to be destroyed, and it's going to be destroyed by fire. This world is going to be over, it's going to be gone. So it is senseless. For people who believe in Jesus Christ and the power of the gospel and the state of the church to begin to put all of their hope in the things of this world is what the Bible called it, whether it be politics or whether it be nations, and what we put our hope in and our faith in is the church and the God of the church. So what that means for you, everyone listening, if you are a believer, you should be more concerned about the state of the church than you should the state of the world. Why? The church is the only thing that's going to be left. It's all that's going to be left. And you say, well, but Larry, you said something about persecution. Well, let's get back to that. Let's say things get worse instead of get better. I don't know what's going to happen, but I have a tendency to believe that there's a strong possibility things could get worse in the political realms. What happens? What happens? if that's actually what brings about the next great awakening because there can be no more cultural Christianity, because there can be no nominal faith. It is either that you stand with Jesus or you don't, and every time that happens, it allows the church to become what Jesus told us to be, and what were we told to be? Salt and light where we live. And if we're able to display that, because we have to be what the Bible also says we will be, aliens and strangers, that you don't fit in with the world and the world systems, then and then only, can the church truly look like it was ever meant to look? Paul warned Timothy, 1 Timothy 4 1, that some will fall away from the faith because they pay attention to deceitful spirits and the doctrine of demons. But how does this happen? I'll tell you how it often doesn't happen. You don't often have teachers young people, students, even college students, just one day say, today I'm leaving the faith. Today is the last day I'm going to be a Christian. You don't have people just radically saying, today is the last day I'm going to believe in God. No, how does it happen? You know how it happens. It's a slow fade. It's that when we allow false theology and false doctrine to come into our mind, all of a sudden, in the name of openness, in the name of acceptance, we end up in our minds allowing things to take place and take root that the Bible doesn't allow. And then all of a sudden, we've seen it across denominations. We've seen it in individual churches. The policies that are adopted are so unbiblical that in the name of love, in the name of acceptance, that they've wormed their way into places. And before you know it, there's no use in it even being called a church because the very vestiges that make something a church are no longer there. And that's why it is that we guard what it is that has been entrusted to us. What's so strange about them is that often the people that are adopting false beliefs think they're becoming more spiritual, more open-minded, more loving, more caring while it's actually killing them. And it's in this subtlety that we see the work of Satan. We see it because John predicted in 1 John 4, verse one, just the letter just before this one, He said, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. When it says test the spirits, how do you do that? How do you do that? Again, raining outside, first of spring break, you lost an hour of sleep. I get it. But I still want you to fill in the blank for me. I think you'll get this one. All that glitters is not gold all that glitters isn't gold. Well, that statement certainly applies when it comes to us testing the spirits. Now, I would submit to you that in the first century, they had a problem with false teachers. Now, John said, verse 7, many deceivers. And you told me that the problem has gotten worse, not better. And I agree with you. How do we know that the problem has gotten worse? couldn't help but think about it this week. Just think about the world we live in versus the world that they lived in. At that time, you had a couple of folks that in the name of hospitality would let people into their house and then let people into their church. But it was traveling false teachers. It was one group of people that was coming by that individual congregation. You say, how do you think it's gotten worse? I know this. The pastor at that church… There wasn't such thing as TikTok. There wasn't Twitter. There wasn't Instagram. There wasn't Facebook. There weren't podcasts. There wasn't the internet. There wasn't radio. There wasn't television. So now, we've given a platform, both thankfully, for those that proclaim biblical truth, and that part of it is wonderful. But we've also given platforms to any deceiver who comes by, which is why it's my job to warn you the Lord has called me to be the shepherd, and part of what a shepherd does is protect sheep from wolves. I want you to hear me loud and clear. There are wolves that did just as soon destroy your spiritual life and your family than they had to do anything. They are out there amongst you. And so you have to be more discerning. We can't be a people that just say here, oh, well, this is a Christian radio program. It's bound to be right or they call this guy pastor, he's bound to be telling the truth, or this person has a popular broadcast, so it's bound to be right, or this is really entertaining, it's bound to be good. Because somehow we have fallen into the same trap as the world because we believe that success as defined by the world means that it must also be true, which is the craziest thing in the world because you can pack out a concert hall in a minute and be successful, but that doesn't mean that it's biblically truthful. You can pack out an SEC stadium every Saturday in the fall, and that doesn't mean that biblical truth is what's being told, right? I hope… I can't even get an amen for that. That's how locked in you guys are. Right, though? And so why would we use that same line of thinking when it came to understanding how it is that we see deceivers? You say, well, Larry, I just can't understand it. I mean, I'm thinking of whole denominations. I'm thinking of churches. I'm thinking of individuals, all who have allowed this false theology to bring this slow fade into their life. Why would we allow it? I can answer that, and you ought to be able to answer it too. Because Paul told us ab- directly, Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, why was it allowed then and why is it allowed now? Colossians 2, 8, teachers are welcome because they pander to itching ears. What does that simply mean? It means that if all you do is tell people what they want to hear, people will keep coming and they'll tune in and they'll give, right? and the money keeps rolling in, and the enterprises keep growing and growing. So we have to be careful, because if the only people that you're listening to are people that are telling you things that make you feel good about yourself, and that you never have any conviction, and you're never confronted with sin, your alarm bells ought to be going off in your heart and in your soul, ding, 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 false prophet, false prophet, false prophet. You say, well, how am I gonna know Good question. I think we ought to be known more for what we believe than what we don't believe. But I don't know how you're ever going to know what not to believe unless you are committed to truth because you're committed to the word, you're committed to placing yourself under the authority of God's word, you're studying it as a group of people, you're studying it as individuals and you're placing yourself under it. If not, you're walking around And you're placed a target on your back because you are the one who is easily deceived. The Bible calls you weak-willed. I don't want to be that. I want to be a guardian of the trust. I want to be a warrior for the call of God. So he says that we are to watch out. You see that phrase, watch out, means to discern, to listen. Yes, to even be suspicious. 1 Timothy 6.20, guard what has been entrusted to you. Why? It's answered here, so that verse 8, you may not lose what you have worked for. Now, some of you may have had a question when that verse came up. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Lose what we have worked for. All we talk about here all the time is that we are saved by what? Grace. Grace. By grace through faith, this not of ourselves so that no one can boast. But then we come across this verse and it says, you don't want to lose what you have worked for. Well, we know it can't mean that you earned your salvation. So what does that mean? What does it mean that you have worked for? The Bible makes it very clear, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 through 15, if you want to look it up and spend some time there, that we're going to be rewarded in the next life For how it is that we work out or live out our salvation. In other words, we're saved only by grace, but the rewards we receive in heaven are going to have to do with how we live for Jesus here and now. And John is warning this church, you've done a great thing. God's moved mightily in you. You've been a powerful witness. You've been a strong example. Don't lose what you've worked for by letting these people who have wormed their way into your homes and into your life and into your church, don't let them stop steal it from you. Because what is the devil's goal? To seek, to kill, and to destroy. Now, most of you, if he announced, hey, I'm coming at you, you might be ready to take him head on, but that's why he's sneaky and deceptive and tricky and comes by the way that he does. So we protect truth from those who deceive and destroy. And number two, we protect truth from those who depart and deny. Look at verse 9. Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Runs ahead and does not continue. I don't know that I've read anything recently that was more applicable to what we're dealing with as it comes to false theology than the verse that we just read together. Because we have so many people who are announcing that they have a superior spirituality because they have been given insights that no one else has been given. By the way, that's a way to identify a false teacher. If they tell you they've got something fresh that no one ever has heard before, that they've received a vision that no one's ever seen before, that they've gotten something for Scripture that in 2,000 years of church history, no one's ever gotten out of it before, it ought to be like alarm bells are going off, false teacher, false teacher, false teacher. It says that they have run so far ahead, claiming to have superior knowledge, advanced insight. Often these are the spiritual know-it-alls. They've gotten so far ahead that they've actually left God behind. They've gotten so progressive that they've progressed past the gospel. They've gotten so modern that they've progressed past Christ. So anyone who alters, adds, subtracts, misrepresents, or denies what the Bible teaches, especially concerning Christ and the gospel, is who John is talking about. And it's amazing that he only had 13 verses, but he made sure that he says this. Anyone who does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Verse 9, whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. Don't miss this. He says it plainly. There are so many false teachers today that would tell you that you can have God without Jesus. You can get to God any way you want to get to God, that all roads lead to the same path. In fact, that's what universalism is, and that is so creeping into the church that unfortunately there are many pastors now that if interviewed, if they were asked, are there other ways to get to heaven except through Jesus Christ, there are even pastors that in many denominations would acquiesce to that. And yet John says, you can't have God. So people say, you believe in God? That's great. You don't believe in the God of Scripture unless you believe in His Son. And the point is that what we believe about Jesus affects everything else about our life. So some will argue that this take is harsh, intolerant, or even unloving. But I want you to understand what this is not saying. It's not saying that we shouldn't have a conversation with someone who's not a believer. That's what missions is. It's it's not saying that we shouldn't have a conversation with someone who disagrees with us. Obviously, we should. It's not saying that we shouldn't be kind to people of other religions. Certainly, the Bible commands us to be kind. This is talking about that you would let those views into your home and into your life and into your church where they have the chance to take over because you have not been vigilant to knowing what you believe and knowing why you believe it. So, that brings us to ask the question, if we're to be guardians of the trust, how do we keep the Trojan horse from coming through those doors? It's it's ramming its way. It's trying to get in every chance it can. So, how do we keep it out I want to tell you the primary way that I believe the church has to keep it out. And that is to understand what the absolute number one way that a church will be measured. And this is where I think that so often we've gotten off track. What is the number one way in which a church will be measured? Some people will ask that and they'll say, well, it probably has a lot to do with like their youth programs. Nope. What's the number one way that a church will be measured? Well, it probably is, you know, what they do for their children. No. What's the number one way that a church will be measured? Well, it probably has a lot to do with their music. Nope. Well, it probably has to do with their commitment to missions. Nope. What is the number one way that a church will be measured? How it handles the Word of God. Number one. And I can prove that to you. Because if you mishandle the Word of God, you will mishandle children's ministry. If you mishandle the Word of God, you will mishandle student ministry. If you mishandle the Word of God, and we have seen this in our day, overblown by it, if you mishandle the Word of God, you will very much mishandle music ministry. If you mishandle the Word of God, then why would you ever even send missions in the first place? The Word of God protecting what we believe and what we teach is absolutely the church's main responsibility to both guard and proclaim Scripture and to be guardians of the trust. That's how we keep the Trojan horse from coming through the doors. The most severe crime against God, the most severe crime against God, is to mishandle his word. I want to confess to you something today. People say, well, I bet being a a preacher, I bet that's stressful. It is. I love it, but yeah, it's stressful. But I want you to know what's the most stressful about it. Say, well, I bet, you know, people. Yeah, people can be stressful. People can be problems. But I'm going to be honest, God's blessed me. I don't spend a ton of time all the time worried about what somebody's going to think, or if I offended somebody, or if I didn't do this, or I didn't do that. Some, it certainly concerns me, but that's not my biggest issue. The biggest stressor on my life is that I know I'm going to be judged even harsher than everyone else based on how I handle God's Word. That the number one way I shepherd you is whether or not I have led you in truth and taught you to understand truth, and made you desire truth in your inmost parts of what the Bible says. That you would be someone who is committed that the Word of God is a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. That you would love God because you love Scripture. So failing to take God's Word seriously is careless. And if we do that, eventually we can guarantee that the Trojan horse is coming in. I truly believe that what we have seen throughout church history has been because people have failed at upholding the Word of God. The reason that the Protestant Reformation came about, 95 theses, the whole thing, was because the entire Roman Catholic Church had abandoned the Word of God. They had abandoned teaching the Word of God. They had abandoned salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone, to God's glory alone. They had abandoned it. And truly today, if there is going to be another reformation in the church, it will not happen without an unwavering dedication and commitment and love to the Word of God. Because we are sold out because we have been given a trust. How many of you are thankful that someone shared that trust with you? That somebody loved you enough to tell you the gospel? That you had a mama or a daddy or a Sunday school teacher, or a preacher, or a youth minister, somebody in your life shared that precious trust with you? Now you've got a job to do. we not somebody else's. We can't wait for the next generation. It's our job. It is our job. And on my watch at this place with you people, there aren't any Trojan horses coming through those doors. We're going to believe and behave based on what God has told us in his word. And I'm asking you to join me in that. Thanks for listening to FBC Summit. We are leading everyday people to love Jesus and make Him known. For more information, visit our website, fbcsummit.org.